0: Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. So much to discuss this week, most notably the CFP rankings, the final CFP rankings, as well as MLB Free Agency. But before we start, I just want to bring up again for a moment, I'm, I'm recording this on the day, it will come out today. It is December 7th. And of course, that is Pearl Harbor Day. And, you know, you know I'm a history buff, but I, you know, I, I've mentioned before, I probably mentioned this the last, at least the last year, but I, th- I think maybe two years ago. Yeah, it must have been two years ago, even when, when we were doing this show, that Pearl Harbor Day is so, it's such an incredibly, it's an incredibly important date in our country's history, in world history, really, because it's, the date the, obviously a national tragedy, really an international tragedy that dragged us into World War II, and it is something that is not really recognized as much as it once was. Because if you think about it, you'd have to be, you know, 81 years old now just to have been alive at all for Pearl Harbor Day, let alone to have remembered it. You'd you'd have to be well into your 80s or into your 90s, perhaps, and so it's there are not as many people around to just pass on the the lore and remind people how important this day actually is how how precious those lives were and how crucial it was to american history and uh, world history really because without that day you know you don't really what we have no idea what happens but the men and I would think women as well, civilians as well, who lost their lives that day, and just to keep us alive because it could have been worse. They could they could have taken out more, and it could have been a far worse day. And we're very fortunate now to to live in a place where we have not really had too many significant foreign. ...attacks on our country, we, for, I mean, to have a war in general is horrible, but that we, it's because of those people that protected our country that we fight our wars primarily overseas, and we are, and not, not to mention the, uh, the relationship with Japan and the, re- the relationship with Germany and Italy has changed so much in the last, uh, let's not say 80 years, but in the last 75 years. Since the end of the war, it has progressed and so beautifully, and so it's just something that I wanted to note because really, not enough people really recognize this day. I have I have family gone and family, perhaps I I haven't even met maybe when I was maybe when I was very young, but family that served overseas. I think more so in the European theater but served overseas during World War II. And so I mentioned that during the the, our, our, the week, I believe it was the week after Veterans Day, our show. And uh, so I'm just incredibly grateful to those people. And please, please remember, because history, unfortunately, at times does repeat itself. And we, we just need to acknowledge the importance of that day. But moving on to our national pastime, normally I'd, I'd be starting with, the college football playoff. That's what I've been doing the last few weeks. But until probably last night, December 6th, Tuesday, I I would have been talking about the CFP, but now it's it's absolutely necessary, I think, to bring up baseball first because despite all these incredible signings, the biggest one took place last night. That's Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge will return to the Yankees for nine years and $360 million, Brian Cashman, in addition, will return to the Yankees as their general manager for the next four years. There had been some controversy because, I think it was Brian Cashman had apparently leaked some of the details, or, or was rumored at least that he had leaked some of the details, and that had frustrated Aaron Judge, understandably so, and so that may have upped the price. John Heyman actually reported falsely, very briefly, that one of his sources had told him that Aaron Judge would be going to the Giants. That turned out to be false. Would have made a lot of sense, as Judge is from that area of California, and he went to Fresno State. Ultimately does not do so. Apparently had gone to the winter meetings, knowing it would either be the Yankees, the Giants, or the Padres. The Padres, big swing and a miss so far in free agency as they lose Josh Bell. We'll talk about that. Actually, Josh Bell goes to Cleveland, two years, $33 million. That's a huge signing, a big power bat, somebody that Cleveland really needs, guy with a little bit of experience. And, you know, a very light hitting lineup, great contact hitting lineup, but a lighter and younger hitting lineup. That's really one guy who is. Huge for the Guardians. He can also opt out after this year, by the way. But back to the Judge situation. So Judge will be returning $40 million a year. The Yankees were more likely, I think originally had gone at eight years for $300 million. which was $37.5 a year. I figured once they had made that offer and it seemed Judge wanted pretty much the offer that they ended up giving him, you figured he was probably going to stay because they were not that far apart. Especially for all the money the Yankees have, you know, this was a signing they had to make. Now, now the pressure is more so on Judge. It's, it's on the Yankees as well to replenish their bullpen in in the last year and really get some better contact hitters in their lineup. I would say that's what really cost them in against Houston in the ALCS. Their bullpen being severely injured last year, they bring back Tommy Canley on a two-year, eleven and a half million dollar deal. They bring him back, he'd been around the block. This is this might be his third stint with the Yankees, as a matter of fact. Gone to the White Sox and a couple other places. But a guy who was really good with them was there in 2017, as a matter of fact, the year where really Aaron Judge probably won the, the fir- MVP the first time. The Yankees probably should have won the American League pennant. But of course, I think we all know what happened then. I digress. So, But the, the pressure is all on Judge now. The pressure is really on Judge to deliver a pennant, let alone a championship, let alone perhaps multiple championships in that nine-year window. Even though he will, at this pace, probably go down as an all-time great Yankee and an all-time great player, there is a ton of pressure on him now, and rightfully so for how much money he is getting. Contracts are remarkable in Major League Baseball, let alone sports in general, but a lot of pressure on him, rightfully and understandably so. And I think he was coming back anyway. But I think the relationship with Cashman and that uh, that leak probably prob- is probably the difference between what the Yankees were offering and what what Judge's management wanted. Regardless, he's back. The Yankees can afford him, and that's that. Now, we're going to talk about a, a number of other signings. For one thing, the Red Sox signed Kenley Jansen to a two-year, $32 million deal. I had talked over the years about, you know, I, I had said that a lot of a lot of positions in sports are carousels, and one of them, I, I said for years, was Red Sox shortstops. Obviously, in the last nine or so years, it's been Xander Bogart's. But in the last couple of years, I would say it's more likely been their closer position. Once once Craig Kimbrell was out of Boston, it's kind of rotated. It was Barnes, and uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost been a bullpen-by-committee situation for Boston. Kenley Jansen comes in, a guy who did well in Atlanta. He's not what he was in Los Angeles, but certainly a veteran presence, a guy who's won a championship before, a guy who has consistently pitched well in the postseason and consistently... Just been on good teams, so that that's a, a huge aid for Boston, at perhaps a reasonable price, considering, you know, even considering his age and his decline. The Giants were said to be probably the other front runner for Aaron Judge. They do get a very good ball player, and for a very reasonable pr- reasonable price. Also in the outfield, they get Mitch Haniger, three years, forty three and a half million dollars. Good right handed bat. He's got some power, and he he also has an opt-out after the second year, but much more reasonable deal for San Francisco, and they can go out and try to sign somebody else still very early on in this period. The Cardinals make a significant signing, and this, honestly, again, a very reasonable price, and St. Louis kind of a mid-market organization in terms of budget in terms of everything really but they bring in Wilson Contreras for five years 87 and a half million dollars so that is let's see 17 and a half a year not awful still one of the top line catchers in the game can really anchor that offense he's a good power hitter good in the postseason he's won a championship before this marks that being said kind of difficult when for cub fans I would have to imagine, One, because he goes to the Cardinals, but two, this really marks the end of an era in Chicago. Obviously, David Ross is still their manager, but Wilson Contreras was pretty much the last piece of that core of the 2016 championship team. Clearly, you'll take take the end of a core that won a championship over the end of any of those other teams in the 108 years, that, that longest drought in sports history, North American Pro Sports. But still the end of an era for the Cubs and quite the beginning for the Cardinals as Contreras has to fill the shoes of Yadier Molina. So you can only imagine what Adam Wainwright would be thinking, guy who decided to return after Pujols and Molina retire this past year. So he's the guy who I think is probably most important in that whole conversation, but a Cardinal organization that's so well-run from top to bottom, and that is a huge signing. Andrew Heaney, who had struggled with the Angels, struggled with the Yankees, struggled with the Dodgers, signs with the Texas Rangers for two years and $25 million. Clearly, that is not their biggest signing this week. We'll discuss that in a moment. He can opt out after the first year. Texas, again, more of a heavy-hitting team, so I think they probably figure Heaney is a guy who can pitch more to the score. I can tell you from... From watching him here, from watching him with, in New York, watching him with the Angels, that he is a guy who is rather inconsistent, but he does have kind of quick flashes of brilliance. It's there. It they they just need to figure it out. They need to f- to find that in there, and it could perhaps help that he'll be pitching alongside Jacob Degrom. Five years, hundred and eighty-five million dollars. With the Texas Rangers, the Mets, I don't think we're far off, that far off in terms of money. I think they were probably going to give him apparently a, apparently a little less than what they were going to offer Scherzer, which is difficult considering the age gap. That being said, Scherzer had come from another team, and so price goes up from there. Scherzer has won a championship. Clearly, that's not DeGrom's fault. You know, DeGrom's done everything he he can with the Mets organization. But also, I think Scherzer was less injury-prone. And so that was another big thing. So DeGrom, who, you know, at least if you're a Mets fan, you can say he didn't go to Atlanta. I figured that's probably, that was probably the first team to come to mind, at least other than the Mets, because he's from the Tampa area. He might have grown up, I think, maybe before the Rays were really around or before the Rays were as big as they are now. And he grew up a Braves fan. So Atlanta would have made a lot of sense, but the Braves are a lot like St. Louis, where they have a lot of homegrown talent. We saw this with with Michael Harris and Spencer Strider this year that they do a very good job of locking up young, homegrown talent to reasonable contracts on both sides and kind of deferring that payment to later years just to make make the most of that contract. And it's, and it's a win for both sides. DeGrom is in his prime, maybe a little past his prime. Again, he came up a little later. He came up to the majors a little later on than than the average ball player, the average pitcher. And, you know, again, some guys want money. Some guys just really want money. And so DeGrom took $37.5 million a year. The issue is I don't know how good the Texas Rangers are going to be this year, let alone within the next few years. As they brought in Seager, they brought in Semion and did not do much. This could be a, a difference. In terms of pitching, but I don't know. We shall see. Cody Bellinger makes an interesting signing. This kind of a this is kind of a low risk, high reward deal, as the Cubs bring in Cody Bellinger for one year and seventeen and a half million dollars. It's a guy who has unfortunately declined. His production has declined. His health a little bit has declined in the last couple of years since he won. National League MVP, a gentleman who is integral to, or integral, I I still don't know how it's pronounced, anyway, so crucial to the success of the Los Angeles Dodgers since he has come into this league. When they won the pennant in 2017, probably should have won the World Series, won the pennant in 2018, maybe you can argue the same thing, 2020 finally won the World Series after... A seemingly much longer wait team that, that reached the NLCS in 2021 and and probably just the most successful franchise in baseball over the last at least half decade maybe over maybe over the last 10 seasons in total but a guy who again low risk high reward for the cubs and this is it's going to be so crucial for him to stay healthy if this is a one year deal but Cubs are sort of in a transition period here. We mentioned Contreras leaving, and Bellinger is that one guy of, you know, maybe we can hold over and try to bring some guys in before our younger talent can get up. Now, another big signing, they bring in Jamison Tyon, Four years, $68 million. This is a guy who pitched very well in Pittsburgh, pitched pretty well with the Yankees. I thought he was a little underutilized in the postseason by Aaron Boone. He had a very good outing. His last outing, I believe, was game one between the Yankees and the Astros in the ALCS. Pulled kind of early. I think it was one run on the board after four and two-thirds in a 1-1 game. And, you know, I've said this with Boone and Girardi. The Yankees have not been the best in terms of bullpen management. But then again, that's kind of what this league is in general here. At, At least they... I think bullpens don't manage it the way I would manage it. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit more of a baseball purist. I wouldn't say, oh, let you know, let every guy throw a complete game every game, but I think the analytics are a little off to me. Regardless, Tyone is a good pitcher who was a bit of a workhorse for the Yankees this year. He was one of a number of guys with a Yankee bullpen decimated by injuries who. Pitched a lot more innings. Went deeper into games in general this year. And pitched to a fairly good ERA. It was a very good staff this year. So that that's a good signing for the Cubs. I don't know if he can anchor a rotation necessarily, but that is a, a very good signing. Moving on, as we come here to the NL East, the Phillies make two significant signings, one maybe more so than the other, but the big one, Trey Turner, 11 years, 300 million dollars with the Phillies. Turner like Bryce Harper, a former national and you know th- this one is this one has to be really devastating if you're the Dodgers because the Dodgers I, I argued this, I didn't understand why they let Corey Seager walk after he won World Series MVP. They trade for Trey Turner, and they don't bring back Turner after is it I think two and a half years, and they never reach the World Series after letting go of Seager. They they opted for Turner, and Turner still leaves. Dodgers do not win the World Series in the stretch post Seager, and only with Turner. That's got to be devastating, I would have to think. I know winning in 2020 really softens the blow, but that was a serious investment they made. And it's the same thing with Scherzer, where it didn't work out. They had Scherzer, they lost in the NLCS, it didn't work. And so, that's not to say the, the Dodger core is not still outstanding, and they should not still be one of the front runners to win the World Series, but those are Two very disappointing losses. The Phillies somehow flooded with money now as they bring in one of the best shortstops in baseball, a great all-around player, a a perennial 30-30 threat, great fielder, a guy who can hit at the top of the order, can probably hit anywhere in the order, and a guy that's going to add only add to a team that came very close to winning the World Series this year. A team that surprised a lot of people and got within two wins of hoisting the Commissioner's Trophy this year. So that's huge. The Phillies should absolutely be, I think at this point, I think they should be the favorites to win the National League pennant if they were not already by bringing in Trey Turner. In addition, they lure Taiwan Walker from the Mets for four years and seventy-two million dollars, that is you know, a big signing. With I, I don't believe I believe Wheeler and Nola are both locked up, but you know, I had mentioned it was almost a Spawn and Sane and Pray for Rain type situation. Ranger Suarez developed in the postseason, but it's a Philly rotation that is even more loaded now. Taiwan Walker, a guy who had pitched in, I believe it was Seattle before the Mets really developed and became a fan favorite for the Metropolitans this year in particular. Helped a a very deep rotation, but that is a a big commitment and an impressive, smart signing by the Phillies to bring him in. The Mets, however, despite losing DeGrom, despite losing Taiwan Walker, they do make two very significant signings in the rotation. And perhaps in total or at least for one, more money than they would have spent on DeGrom and maybe Walker as well. They signed Justin Verlander, 39-year-old Justin Verlander, having just won his third Cy Young Award, to a two-year, $86 million deal. That includes a third-year vesting option. In addition, they signed Jose Quintana to a two-year, $26 million deal, Quintana, again, has bounced around a little bit, Cubs, White Sox, has not won a championship yet, but a guy who has pitched for high-quality organizations, he's pitched in the postseason, pitched in St. Louis as well, and Verlander, of course, is going to go down as one of the great pitchers of his generation, somehow had perhaps the best year of his career last year. So... It's a serious gamble for the Mets, but I mean, when you when you lose Degrom, we we all knew Verlander was going to be a huge commodity in free agency this year. He was going to be one of the bigger guys, especially when Judge would sign. Verlander was perhaps going to be the next biggest free agent. Possible possible exception being Turner, really, but at least in the short term, could be Verlander. And so, look, the Mets have the money. They've made the investment. And Verlander will be reuniting with a couple of players. He'll be reuniting with James McCann, for one, but he, he will also be reuniting with his teammate in Detroit, another teammate in Detroit, and that's Max Scherzer, two guys who made an unbelievable one-two punch, One of the maybe one of the great one-two... Pitching staffs in the history of Major League Baseball, a team that probably should have won a championship at some point, but time and time again just faltered even deep in the postseason. 2012 lost in the World Series to the Giants. 2013 had that lead over the Red Sox and blew it and got swept by the, the Orioles in the Division Series. 2014 2011, had been knocked out by the Rangers in the ALCS. But two guys that were incredibly dominant. And still are. Scherzer faltered in the postseason, but the Mets are trying to turn back the clock here. Verlander certainly has, so that's a huge, huge deal. Another mid-market team, the Brewers. Brewers and Mariners really both benefit from this deal. I don't know how good Colton Wong really is to say that getting two bodies going to Milwaukee that are this good is that great a deal for Seattle, but The Mariners get Colton Wong, who is just a solid all-around player, can play, he's kind of a utility player, really. Good line drive hitter, has some power. It's not exactly a short porch, I would say, in Seattle, but a fine, fine hitter who can hit maybe 2-3-4 in the order. Brewers get Jesse Winker, and they get Abraham Toro. Not a bad deal for either team, necessarily. But a lot more pressure on Wong and on the on the Mariners. Just because I think that one for two... You know, those are three high-quality guys. I think that, that two for one should put way more pressure on Wong. Zach Eflin leaves the Phillies. That's a big loss for them. He signs a three-year, $40 million deal with the Tampa Bay Rays. Really a rarity for that organization. So this is very significant that they can bring in a kind of even a you know even a middle of the rotation guy for decent money. It it sets kind of continues a precedent. Really, I know Corey Kluber was kind of later in his career. Charlie Morton even a little later in his career. Zach Eflin I think closer to his prime. And so this is a significant signing for Tampa Bay. A raised team that again could win the American League East and uh, again could be a, a World Series contender. So that's a, a very, very significant deal. Now, the last thing in terms of just offseason, you know, general transactions, moves, things like that the Pittsburgh Pirates get the number one overall pick in the first ever MLB draft lottery. You know, it's an organization that has really, really disappointed its fan base in the last six, seven years or so. And it's unbelievable because it's a great sports town. Obviously, Steelers, Penguins, University of Pittsburgh in basketball and football has has great programs. And the Pirates, historically, great organization. I, I know they've been, you know, the butt of jokes over... The course of their history at times, maybe most notably in the, I don't know, 40s, 50s, but a team that's won five championships, an original National League member, great fan base when when the team is good and they, they get, the, the fan base is great, it's it's a beautiful ballpark, but it's a team that after a couple of years where they look really good under Clint Hurdle, they've been one of the least maybe maybe the least successful team in baseball over the last five, six, seven years. And it's a real shame for that fan base. But th- this is the pick that they needed. I know the draft doesn't quite mean as much in the MLB as it does with the NFL, NBA, NHL, because of I think the inter- the international signings and the and the way the system works is far different, but I mean, so many great players, the, the ceiling of which is probably Ken Griffey Jr. So many great players have come out of the MLB draft, have come out at number one, and so if you're a Pirates fan, you're just hoping the scouts get it right. And look, it's a, it's a Pirate team that in the last couple of years, you look at guys like like O'Neill Cruz, they they've got a couple of good guys coming up. They they might be a little. Closer than we think, not that close, but a little closer than we think to getting back to where they want to be. Now, two interesting pieces of news for retired players this week. One very sad. The first off, Gaylord Perry passes away. Passed away this week at the age of 84. He was a journeyman, Hall of Famer, won 314 games for his career, won two Cy Young Awards, pitched 22 seasons, spent much of his career with the San Francisco Giants, and maybe the funniest thing, kind of the master of the spitball. I'm pretty sure it may have been after its outlawing, I can't remember exactly, but kind of a master tactician. I know I talk a lot about you know, the Astros scandal and the Yankees and the Red Sox, and then about steroids and how, you know, deplorable the use of steroids is. But, and I'm not going to make an excuse regarding the spitball. I think it's just almost a little more folksy. I don't know. It's, It's just kind of different, kind of funnier. I think it's a little harder to cheat. I think it's a lot harder to cheat as a pitcher without medical enhancement, I guess. Than it is as a hitter, and so I, I just find, I don't know I just find it kind of interesting we've never really no one's ever really talked about kicking Gaylord Perry out of the Hall of Fame, but it was just always kind of a funnier thing to me and that's probably funniest because Gaylord Perry was the inspiration behind or at least a partial inspiration behind Eddie Harris in major League, which is I would say the greatest baseball comedy, maybe the great you could all might be the greatest sports comedy ever. And Eddie Harris, played by a great character actor Chelsea Ross. If you've not seen the movie, wow, if you have not seen the movie, and I know you may be international, I know I know if if you're from outside the US, there are a lot of people I think most notably you know, if you're outside the US, Canada, parts of Latin America, you know, Japan, Korea, maybe Australia. It, there aren't as many baseball fans, but if you have not seen Major League, please watch Major League. It is fantastic. And Eddie Harris, it's kind of highlighted this. Or this character kind of highlighted by that one scene early on in the film. He's talking to to Rick Vaughn, played by Charlie Sheen, and I think it's in the middle of spring training. He takes off his shirt in the in the clubhouse, and you see he's got what do you what do he got on there? He's got little substances on like on each corner of his torso. Oh, you got uh, Vaseline, Crisco, Vagisil, all these, th- all these different things, all these different kind of slick things. He just uses to, to get the ball to move differently. He talks about how he'll put some jalapeno in his nose and w- when the umps aren't looking. So just wipe his nose and put snot on the ball it's really, it's hysterically funny, it's a great movie, and that's just kind of the the just the style, just the attitude of Gaylord Perry, and kind of for a number of pictures in that era, but he was the master of it. He was the guy who could really, really figure it out, so rest in peace to him. And some some much lighter news, some great news, I think news that's far overdue, Fred McGriff McGriff the Crime Dog, elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame via the Contemporary Baseball Era Committee. He was one of several players, including Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, Don Manningly, a number of others who could have been elected. Fred McGriff the only one. Long overdue, really. He has as many home runs, exactly as many home runs as Lou Gehrig over the course of his career. Only played two more seasons than Gehrig did. Gehrig played 17, McGriff played 19. The Crime Dog was really an important piece of the 95 Atlanta Braves, that, you know, the team of the 90s, the, at least from the National League standpoint, the team that was the most consistent throughout the 1990s, winning five pennants, won the championship once in 95, and Fred McGriff was a big left-handed power hitter, so so big for that team. Also made a big name for himself, the San Diego Padres, as well as the Tampa Bay Rays, really uh, just long overdue that he got in, because I know people say, if you are clean, that 500 home runs is kind of the marker, but I feel like if you're a good enough hitter, a good enough pure hitter, or a good enough player in general, 400 or, or 400 or even 450 is, you know, not automatic, but really puts you on a good pace for the Hall of Fame. So so Fred McGriff finally in, and there are going to be a few fan bases that are really thrilled for him to get in. It's going to be quite the time when he finally goes to Cooperstown. Okay, now after over a half hour, we will finally talk about the college football playoff, and then we'll actually talk about football, well, football, the NFL, then we'll talk a little bit about the World Cup, I am very glad to be able to take up more of your time. You're welcome. CFP starting with the well first okay, where we are. The matchups New Year's Eve, number 4 Ohio State, 11 and 1, finished second in the Big 10 East did not play in their Big 10 in their conference championship game face off against number 1 Georgia, 13 and 0, SEC champions both in the regular season and the SEC championship game. Game will be at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. Clear home game for the Bulldogs, who are also the defending national champions. Fiesta Bowl, number three TCU Horned Frogs, 12-1 Big Ten regular season champions, fell in the Big 12 championship game to Kansas State. We'll talk about that momentarily. Facing off against number two, the Michigan Wolverines, 13-0 Big Ten champions. Now, I will give you my picks, but first we'll talk a little bit about a couple of these conference title games. For one thing, Big Ten championship game, Michigan knocks off Purdue 43 22. Purdue was in it for a while. It was 14 13, Michigan at halftime. That being said, that's kind of what Michigan has been over the course of the year. It's kind of what TCU has been over the course of the year as well. I, I think two teams with with different styles, Michigan more of a run-based team, Michigan a much stronger defensive team, but both teams that really, I mean, TCU more more comeback-based, Michigan more pulling away, they're close games at halftime. They're usually, like, regardless of team, it's probably going to be a close game at halftime. And so Michigan was able to pull away. That's what happens when you're a run-based team is that you have a lot of narrow games at half. TCU, you're more of a pass-based team. It gives you the ability to, to play better in the second half from behind. So Michigan becomes the only repeat champion in, uh, of the Big Ten Championship besides Ohio State since the Big Ten Championship game was founded. Donovan Edwards named the game's MVP with over 180 yards on the ground, multiple TDs, and it's even more impressive when you consider he did not have Blake Corum with him, done for the year following knee surgery. Edwards said very nice things about Corum, said he was the best running back in the country, and that he should be, I believe said he should be the Heisman Trophy winner. Very, very kind. I was rather surprised that that Corum was not named a finalist. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Michigan does enter this game, I would not say a heavy favorite, but probably the favorite against TCU. I think even if both teams had won, Michigan, you know, the the standings, the top three would still be the same. And so TCU lost this week. They lost a great game, though, to a very good Kansas State team. And I I don't think it was as much because of how TCU played, maybe more so. I think, in particular, one coaching decision late in this game really, for sure, cost them. I don't know if they would have won by kicking a field goal, but I can tell you that they, they pretty much gave the game away when they did not succeed on that try. So, in case you're wondering... TCU-Kansas State. Kansas State wins it 31-28 to in overtime. This is in TCU's backyard, by the way. This is at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, TCU, based in Fort Worth. The Horned Frogs decide to go for it on fourth and one. I believe it was fourth and goal on the first possession of overtime. And, of course, if you remember, college football, you get the ball at the opposing 25-yard line. There's no, It's not timed. So, all Kansas State had to do with, was, even if they had just kicked from where they were, it's a 42-43 you know, yarder, and the game probably ends there. They move a few yards, they kick a chip-shot field goal, and they're the Big, big 12 champions. But, uh, you know, TCU played well in this game. They were trailing in half. They were trailing for much of this game. Max Duggan... I mean, if this game was actually his Heisman moment, I I genuinely think, because even though it was the one game his team lost this season, at least through Championship Week, this guy played off played his behind off. He had over 250 yards through the air, over 100 yards on the ground, and the he got beaten up by the Kansas State defensive line in particular. And for how crucial this offense is to that team's success, that is especially big because they're not a great defensive team. They are a great offensive team, and Duggan had to carry them through this game. He played so well, and what stood out to me the most is in the midst of all of that, in the midst of that chaos and and pressure coming from the the Wildcat D line and the Wildcat you know, front seven. Duggan actually had a, a a cut in his knee. He scraped his knee with about a minute and a half left in the third quarter. I noticed pretty quickly and there's no stoppage to play, they don't turn over the ball, they don't score, and so for the last minute and a half you have to keep moving. They didn't call timeout for the last minute and a half. Max Duggan just has an open cut. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, a serious wasn't a wound or anything, but still this open cut on his knee, and God knows—I mean, especially a, a knee for a quarterback—you gotta—you gotta be able to push off somewhere, and so that's not easy. And it's—I I believe that's turf. That stuff is not easy to handle. But uh, you know, ninety seconds on a field doing any—well, ninety seconds doing anything before you notice that you have an open cut. But ninety seconds is a a quarterback. In 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 D1 college football, leading a team down the field, probably no, know, perhaps knowing he was cut, I wouldn't be surprised. Is is just a, a a show of endurance, a show of strength, and a show of commitment. And that's the right, Max Duggan is the biggest reason TCU could knock off Michigan. That's that he's the biggest reason. Now I'll close this with one more. Before I give the picks, close this with one more conference championship game that did not have a CFP representative. USC blew a huge opportunity against Utah because TCU, again, was undefeated. And even though they lost, they lost a very close game. USC was in this game for most of the time with Utah, a team that's ranked similarly to. Kansas State, both three-loss teams, both really good football programs and had great years, and a narrow loss A narrow loss to Utah. I would like to think USC would still make it just based on the format, but USC, despite being in this game for a while, I think it was, was it 24, 23, if memory serves me correctly, Utah just pulled away in this game. in Las Vegas. And so, I mean, there's definitely more of a home game for USC. Utah blows out USC 47-24 in the Pac-12 title game with Cameron Rising throwing for 310 yards and three touchdowns. Even if USC loses this game, I think if it's it's narrow, if it's a one-score game, I think they're probably... Still in, even though they go to two losses. But they blew a huge opportunity here. And, yeah, they they, they missed out. Granted, I don't think Ohio State belongs in the playoff either. I've said this. I said that, you know, whoever lost that Michigan-Ohio State game, even if it was the narrowest of games, probably did not deserve to make the playoff because, fair or not, the losing team would not play in the Big Ten championship game. And if you don't play in your conference championship game, I don't I don't think you deserve—assuming uh, there is a conference championship game, I think every team has one now—every conference has one now, rather—then I don't think you belong in the playoff. At least in a four-team playoff, maybe even in the 12-team playoff, which we're finally going to have, apparently not for another two years, but we're finally going to have. But, yeah, I don't think Ohio State belonged in this playoff, but— I I, tr- I honestly think that because, even though they had two losses, that the following teams would actually, would actually be more worthy than Ohio State of making the playoff just based on the fact that they played in their conference championship games. Now, I know I will be, again, ridiculed, but those teams are Clemson, Tulane, and I believe... I think Troy ended up... I, I, I know Troy's in the outside, but again, I think Troy and I think UTSA both won their respective conference championship games. I know those are not Power 5 or even, you know, Power 6, quote-unquote, conferences. Quote-unquote, Power 6 conferences, but I, you know, they played in their conference championship game. And so you play, you play to the score. You play to what you have. And Ohio State did not do that. I thought those other teams did. That being said, in terms of who's the best best football team, Ohio State is probably, in that sense, worthy of making the playoff. They're probably better than Clemson or USC, who are the, who are the two big ones. I don't, I don't necessarily think the, the, the college football system has, ne- has ever been entirely fair, the championship system. I don't think it's ever been entirely fair because it's so much different from every other sport, every other league where you can have multiple champions. At le- well, at least up until the BCS, you could have multiple champions. But even after that, when you talk about UCF being declared a national champion by one media outlet when they went undefeated and upset Auburn, And so, very, very odd. But point is, we've got four teams left who can win a national championship. Ohio State takes on Georgia. TCU takes on Michigan. I'm going to take Georgia to beat Ohio State. Because first off, I know Ohio State travels well. And, you know, it's – I think home field – again, at a a quote-unquote neutral site, home field is still – not, you know, it, it doesn't really exist because of, you know, you have X amount of tickets guaranteed. But I, it's uh, it's Georgia's home field, essentially. Athens is not far from Atlanta. That So that's one thing, first off. And then secondly, I think, even though Stetson Bennett, to me, is more of a game manager than C.J. Stroud is, I think he has been a little more reliable. And I think Georgia... All I think, well, I think Kirby Smart's the better coach than Ryan Day. I think Ryan Day's a fine coach, but Kirby Smart's better. I, I just can't see. I know Ohio State's going to be mad, but I can't see Ohio State losing to Michigan by 22 points at home, and then going on to reach, let alone win, the national championship. Georgia, I don't think. I don't think Georgia's as good as they were last year. I don't think they have the roster that they did last year but they don't have to face Alabama. That's one thing. I mean they lost to Alabama, not not by much in the SEC Championship game, then ultimately got their payback in the National Championship, finally beating Alabama, finally winning the title. But I don't I don't see Ohio State winning this game. They they they're I think rather lucky to get in. I don't see Ohio State winning this game. Georgia is definitely should be the favorite not only to win this game, but probably to win the national championship. And so, you know, that's that's despite a loaded receiving core for Ohio State and a very good football team, but I, I Georgia is the more consistent, the, the safer pick, more reliable I would take Georgia. Now, TCU and Michigan, this is probably the better game Believe me, Georgia-Ohio State's going to be a good game. I don't think it's going to be a blowout whatsoever, but I'll take Georgia. But TCU and Michigan, this is probably going to be the better game because Michigan does not have the pedigree that Georgia has, at least in recent years, because Georgia has won a national championship very recently. They won last year. Michigan last won a national title 25 years ago. They have not played for the national championship in, I believe, 25 years. And so, I mean, they got to the playoff last year, but this is, even though Michigan is, I think, within the FBS, probably one of the three most successful, probably one of the three or four most successful programs ever, you know, they have not had a a lot of success, at least by comparison to their early years, in the last quarter century or so. So it's it's a newer found... Power. TCU, meanwhile, is another program that does have, I I, th- I think a couple somewhere between two and five national championships. But it's it's been a while since they have been at this level. I know. I mean, they won the you know they won the Rose Bowl that one year under Andy Dalton. They've had some very good teams. They've had. I mean, God's Ladanian Tomlinson was at TCU. His nephew is playing there now. But they have not been in the national title conversation this seriously in the national title conversation for a long time. For as long as I can remember, I would say. They're, again, I think not a great defensive team. They're a very loaded passing team. It's all going to hinge on Max Duggan. It's going to hinge on his health his endurance in this game, whether his own lineman can give him enough protection. And that's going to be tough because while Michigan does not have the names that they had last year on defense, they are somehow stronger. They are somehow a stronger defensive team. They are somehow a stronger running team. That being said, Blake Corum will not be in this game, of course, so maybe offset that a bit. They are a better passing team than they than they were last year. And so I don't know. I, I'd say Michigan, this is, you know, it's their game to lose. I would take the Wolverines in this one. This is the Fiesta Bowl, so by home field standards, this is more belonging to TCU, but even then they probably have to travel about a thousand miles anyway. To Arizona. And two, I believe it's Glendale, officially. I think it's State Farm Stadium now. I can't tell you. I just remember University of Phoenix Stadium. Regardless, guys like Mike Morris, Mike Saner still is one guy to bring up. Not the, you know, It's more of a no-name defense by comparison to Hutchinson and Njabo. But they, like Ohio State, I would say, have a very loaded receiver. They have a deep receiving core. I don't think they have a receiving core with the NFL talent that Ohio State has. But I think they probably have the best receiving core out of the guys remaining, out of the four teams remaining, besides Ohio State. So, Roman Wilson, Cornelius Johnson, Ronnie Bell, who did not play for Michigan, at least down the stretch, for most of last year. And then you have J.J. McCarthy, who is definitely an upgrade at quarterback. Brings you that more of a deep ball ability and much better is a much better rushing quarterback than Kate McNamara was or or is or was last year for Michigan. So, I think it's going to be Georgia and Michigan again in the college football playoff this time for the national championship. Regardless of who wins, it's going to be a really fun one. We move on to the the Heisman for a moment, the four finalists. Stetson Bennett, Max Duggan, C.J. Stroud, Caleb Williams. I think Williams should be the favorite, particularly considering, I think Bennett is, you know, Bennett's a fine quarterback, but I don't think he is, he is as important to his team necessarily. I think he has a better team around him. George is probably the best team, but I don't know if Bennett is the best quarterback. I would say that that the you know Duggan maybe is not maybe doesn't quite have the stats that Caleb Williams does. And it's funny to think though, Stetson Bennett is the one guy of these four to actually win his conference championship game. But Caleb Williams, I think, had undoubtedly the best stats. I think 40 combined touchdowns, and maybe I think three interceptions entering three interceptions for the year entering that Pac-12 championship game where I know USC Williams did not play well, at least in the fourth quarter, but, you know, Stroud's performance against Michigan was really not convincing at least later on in that game. That's a team that scored three points in the second half after being a juggernaut all year, so I think Williams is the guy. I think Caleb Williams should win the Heisman. Again, I I don't think this guy should have won necessarily, but I think Blake Corum probably should have been a finalist. Especially considering, I feel like five is a common number of finalists for the Heisman. It's almost like, you know, nominees for a for a a single Emmy award where it's just a, a very random number nowadays. Could be five, could be six. I don't know. But uh, Corum, I, I think I think probably should have been. I know he was injured for the last you know, game and a half, really two and a half games technically, but really had great numbers this year and was probably as important to Michigan as most of these guys were to their teams, or at least pretty close. But yeah, Caleb Williams is the favorite. Other big news, Deion Sanders named the next head coach of Colorado. That's a program that has really needed some rebuilding. It's going to be it, it it's going to have a bigger opportunity now with the 12-team playoff coming and USC and UCLA leaving the Pac-12. That's going to leave a lot of space, first and foremost, for schools like Oregon in particular, Oregon, Washington, Utah. But then you have these schools like Stanford, Oregon State, Colorado is going to be on the rise. And so Deion Sanders is a guy who really proved himself at, at, the, at the FCS level and prove that he is more than just a player, more than just a commentator, more than just a personality, that he is a guy who can take command of a locker room. So it's an interesting hire. It's a gutsy hire, and we'll see how it works. And last thing, college-wise, Cade McNamara transfers to Iowa. He, you know what, give him credit for, I know he's not J.J. McCarthy, give him credit for what he did With Michigan, he was finally the guy to get them to the playoff. I know it was a lot on the back of the running game and the defense and the coaching of Jim Harbaugh, but Cade McNamara did his job, at least until the Georgia game. Could be a good fit at Iowa considering the quarterback position is probably the only gaping hole for that team. They have a very strong defense. They've had a very strong defense this year. coaching was good. Offensive line was pretty solid. Again, it's tight end university. They've got a great fan base and a great culture there. So, I mean, if McNamara can plug in well to that system, that could be a team that could not only compete for the Big Ten West, but maybe for some even bigger hardware. So that's, that's a significant, uh, significant move. We are kind of running a little long, so I'm going to just try to breeze through the NFL week. Bills defeat the Patriots 24-10 in Foxborough. Thursday night football, Bills go to 9-3, pass drop to 6-6. Josh Allen, two TDs, 22-33, two twenty-three. 23 The big news, Von Miller done for the year with an ACL tear. One of the, I mean, they got a solid secondary, but that's huge news for the Bills, and that's maybe what could separate them from the Super Bowl this season. Absolute killer as the Bills are a game up on the Dolphins. Patriots in the basement, and still a very good AFC East, they're 500, But the Patriots down to 6-6, six six, I think a game out of that last playoff spot. Very emotional game in Atlanta, as the Steelers beat the Falcons 19-16. Craig Ironhead Hayward was a fullback for many years in the NFL, played for the Falcons passed away with a battle with cancer at age 39. His, you definitely know his son Cam, solid defensive lineman for the Steelers, and then his son Connor caught his first ever NFL touchdown pass miles away from his father's grave. Really unbelievable. The Steelers improved to 5-7, Falcons dropped to 5-8. The not a bad performance, to Kenny Pickett, 16-28, 197, and a touchdown. Steelers were really good in, term of, in terms of time and possession, just controlling the game. Falcons, again, as they did with Washington last week, just too little, too late. Packers beat the Bears 28-19. Lions obliterate the Jaguars 40-14. Great game, Jets-Vikings. Jets really, I, I think, are... A little better than the score indicated. The Jets really played the Vikings well in this game. Kind of kept it, at least in the second half, rather. They were down 20-3 late in the first half. Got a field goal right before halftime. I think it was a 60-yarder by Greg Zerline, breaking the Jets record. Mike White threw two picks, but he went 31-57 for 369 yards. Really did a lot to prove himself in this game. Jets... Kept settling for field goals, and they kept in it for a while, but that's not the reason they lost this game. It was really at the end when they did not settle for field goals, where they had a couple of times they had the ball inside the Viking 20, at least once they were stood up at the goal line after a late Viking touchdown, a 27-22 win for the Vikings who go to 10-2 on the year, and the Jets dropped to 7-5, game back of Miami, two games back of Buffalo. They still have great opportunity within their division because of a lot of their head-to-head matchups in particular. Jets, 120 combined rushing yards. Kirk Cousins, not incredible in this game, 21-35, 173, and a touchdown, Vikings head two on the ground. But this was a real prove-yourself game for the Jets. This was a bit of a, a moral victory and they stood up to one of pr- probably the, sec- uh, the second-best team, at least by record, in the NFC. Commanders and the Giants tie at 20. First time the Giants have tied a game in a quarter century that was also against Washington, of course, then by a different name. Graham Gano misses a 58-yard field goal just short, just as time expires. The Commanders came back to tie this game with under two minutes left in the fourth quarter, Taylor Heineke leading Washington, I think, about 90 yards down the field. He went 27-41, 275, and two TDs. Biggest problem for the Giants in this game was just a just terrible job tackling. I know it's a team decimated by injury in the secondary, but still a team that really struggled in terms of tackling. Not great on the ground either. Saquon Barkley had 63 yards on 18 carries. That's... Not incredible. Jones at 12 for 71, as a matter of fact. And it was a game that you thought the Giants were going to put away. They did not. Washington also had a chance to put this game away, as they had the ball in Giants' territory in overtime, but the Giants forced them to punt just outside field goal range. So really not the best of games for either of these teams. And really, either way, it it helps the Eagles and helps the Cowboys. Eagles, who improved to 11-1. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. Cowboys improved to 9-3. Talk about that a little later on. Giants, 7-4-1. Washington, 7-5-1. Giants are still the sixth seed in the NFC. Washington, outside the playoff picture, those both, thanks to the Seahawks, win. So, I mean, these are two teams that very well could still make the playoffs, but highly unlikely that either of these teams will win the division. Maybe Dallas still has a real shot. I mean the Giants do still have two games left with the Eagles but even then they'd have to they'd still have to make up about a game and a half I think with three games and that's going to be very tough to do with the way the Eagles have played but again NFC East far and away the best division in football just a very disappointing week for those two teams speaking of the NFC East the Eagles do win that game over the Titans 35 to 10 in a game where the Titans did nothing on the ground, Ryan Tannehill was actually the the leading rusher for the entire game, three carries, 34 yards. Derrick Henry limited to 11 carries for 30 yards. Even the Eagle running game not good, combined 67 yards on the ground on 24 carries. This was actually a well, not not a two way shootout, but it was a one way shootout really, as Jalen Hurts showed up through the air, 29 of 39. 380 yards and 3 touchdowns. The Eagles took a 21-10 lead to the half. Dominated the Titans in the second half. And cruised to 11-1, the best record in football. The Titans are still probably far and away the best team in the AFC South. 7-5 as the Colts end. The Colts dropped to 4-8-1. The Jaguars dropped to 4-8. The Titans should still probably run away with that division. But... That is a really bad loss if you expect to potentially play this team in the Super Bowl. Ravens beat the Broncos by a score of 10-9. Lamar Jackson injured, but Tyler Huntley leads the Ravens to a surprising victory after trailing 9-3 to the Broncos. That shows again that despite an outstanding Bronco defense, Denver really has been weak and at the quarterback position, surprising at the quarterback position, but offensively in general this year, with uh, Russell Wilson coming to Denver, 17-22, 189 in this game. Ravens survive. They go to 8-4, leading the division still through a tiebreaker with the Bengals. The Browns beat the Texans 27-14. to 14. They ultimately win Deshaun Watson's return to Houston, but he played poorly. He was 12-22 of for 131, no touchdowns, and a pick. All the Cleveland touchdowns came from defense and special teams, and almost all of their points came from defense and special teams. Donovan Peoples-Jones had a 76-yard return for a touchdown on a punt. Denzel Ward had a 4-yard fumble return TD. Tony Fields had a 16-yard pick 6, and even one of the two field goals for Cleveland came after a Houston fumble at their own 32-yard line. Browns did very little. Even the one field goal drive they did have, I think they drove maybe 40 yards. So it was all Cleveland defense and special teams. The Browns go to 5-7, still not too far on the outside. I think about two games out from that last wild card spot. They're they're hoping Watson improves. Texans drop to 1-10-1. Seahawks win a game against the Rams that was probably expected, at least going into this week, to be... A bit of a wider margin of victory. They survived, went at 27-23. Late touchdown pass from Geno Smith to, D- to DK Metcalf. Seahawks, again, as I mentioned, 7-5. They're the last playoff spot right now. And only one game back of the Niners for the NFC West lead. Geno Smith, 28-39, of 39, 367, three TDs. Rams dropped to 3-9. Rams, by the way, pick up Baker Mayfield, released by the Panthers after Matt Stafford Goes on IR. I figured he was going to San Francisco after what happened this week, and it would have made a lot more sense. Would have helped a lot more, and he would have been of much better service. But a Rams team at 3-9, that's very difficult. The Niners at 8-4, they knock off the Dolphins 33-17 despite the loss of Jimmy Garoppolo in this game. Garoppolo suffers an injured foot, originally believed to need season-ending surgery. He apparently will not. He may be back for the playoffs. So if you're the Niners, you just need to survive. Brock Purdy in this game. Brock Purdy comes off the bench, 25 to 37, 210, two touchdowns, one pick. The Niners outscore the Dolphins 16 to seven in the second half. They combine for over 120 yards on the ground. The Dolphins, including two former 49ers, only two. Players rushed for the Dolphins in this game, both X niners Raheem Mostert, 7 carries, 30 yards. Jeff Wilson Jr., 1 carry, 3 yards. That was the biggest difference in this game. Niners go to 8-4, and four, still lead the NFC West. Dolphins trailing the Bills by one game in the AFC East. Great game. I got to see a good portion of this. I was covering an 87s game on Sunday, so I didn't really get a lot of every game. But the Bengals, in maybe the most anticipated game of the week, Beat the Chiefs 27-24. The Bengals were probably the better team in the first half, up 14-10. Chiefs come back to take a lead, but the Bengals outscore Kansas City 10-0 in the fourth quarter as Joe Burrow again beats Patrick Mahomes. I think he's 3-0 now against the Chiefs, but all very, very close games. Harrison Bucker narrowly missed a long field goal in the final minutes. Joe Burrow in this game, 25-31, of 31, 286, two TDs. What I like about these Chiefs-Bengals games is that they're not really shootouts. They're not really low-scoring games either, but they're not really shootouts. Patrick Mahomes, 16-27, 223, and a touchdown. Each team with over 135 yards on the ground. Burrow had a rushing TD in this game as well as the Chiefs go to 9-3. and three. three games up on the Raiders for first place in the AFC West. Raiders... Rather, the Chiefs very much aided by the—I meant to say the Chiefs are three games in front of the Chargers—Chiefs very much aided by the Raiders beating the Chargers, and so they're still three games up on L.A., four games up on Vegas. Chiefs probably running away with the AFC West. Bengals do not have the tiebreaker, but they are tied with the Ravens for the AFC North lead at 8-4. and four. Moving on to that Raiders-Chargers game, actually. 27-20, the Raiders win. They score 27 points in the final three quarters on just two outstanding performances, really three. But in particular, Josh Jacobs, 26 carries, 144 yards, and a touchdown. Devontae Adams, eight catches, 177, two TDs. Those Those two guys combining for over 300 yards from scrimmage. Derek Carr, 16-30, 2-50, to two touchdowns, and a pick. As the Raiders go to 5-7. And, and I maybe keep their season alive really in terms of the wild card at least. Chargers one game out. The Raiders two. And so uh, Raiders, uh, probably their biggest game of the year. Colts Cowboys. Wow. Look, I, 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 nobody I don't think really saw. No, I don't think anybody really saw the Colts season going this way. They were in this game at the end of three quarters, trailing 21-19 in Dallas, a team that is almost certainly going to make the playoffs, and gave up 33 points in the fourth quarter. Outscored 33-0 in the fourth quarter. Seriously, this was just a turnover. Dallas dominated the turnover battle. Dak Prescott in this game, more game manager-like but great in the red zone, 20-30 of for 170 yards. But three touchdowns, one pick, Cowboys in a balanced attack. 220 yards on the ground, four rushing touchdowns. Nobody had more than 100 yards on the ground, by the way. Nobody had more than I think like 75 receiving. Tony Pollard, I think, led with 91 yards. Did so. Ezekiel Elliott had 70 something, I believe. But just a really balanced attack for Dallas. They recorded five takeaways. Here's the big. Here's the big one right here. Five takeaways, leading to 33 points, including multiple, at least one return TD, as a matter of fact. Really, the, the Colts' offense, particularly in the fourth quarter, but just in general, abysmal in this game. Matt Ryan threw three picks. They turned over the ball. Again, they turned it over five times. And it's funny, I kind of did the math Had Jeff Saturday told Matt Ryan to take a knee on those five possessions, as if the water boy was on the field, kind of that mud bowl strategy, the Colts would have lost by two points. So, granted, they still would have lost, but that's so big. The Dallas defense really took over in this game. Malik Hooker with a pick six in the fourth quarter. Dallas still kind of in the hunt with the Eagles. Two games back with five games to play. In the NFC East, and then the last game, another very disappointing fourth quarter for the road team, the Saints, who had dominated most of this game, they were much better in terms of time of possession for a good point. They looked like the better rushing team, just great defensively, as the Buccaneers had 76 yards on the ground in total. Saints only had 66, but it was a running back by committee approach. They give up two touchdowns in the last four minutes, I believe. Blew multiple opportunities. And really just gave this game away. Tom Brady threw the ball 54 times. Andy Dalton threw it only 28 times. Brady, 36 of 54, 281, two touchdowns and a pick. And it's funny, these were chunk plays. I I watched the the replay of this game, and all these plays... I mean, there's one pass interference in the end zone, but most of these plays were chunk plays. Just kind of 10-yard pickups. 10 yards get out of bounds. The Bucs worked the clock well. Brady, again, just as he's done all career, very methodical. But the the Saints really just blew this one. And had the Saints won this game, they would have been a half game back of Tampa for the NFC South lead. In an already very weak division, the Buccaneers lead this division at 6-6. They actually have a negative point differential. They have a negative point differential, and they lead this division. So, the Buccaneers keeping their season alive, and you think maybe with that methodical approach, the ability to come back late, and also the ability to stop the Saints and just kind of the bend but don't break defense. Will Lutz with three field goals in this game that just the bend but don't break defense. Maybe Tampa Bay could still win. Maybe Tampa Bay could still win the whole thing. All right, just trying to rush through this a little bit. The World Cup. We'll finish with the World Cup. Spain knocked up by Morocco, very surprisingly, in the round of 16 PKs. Morocco. Somehow, the only remaining team out of the eight that will play in the quarterfinals that has never reached the semifinals. They are also the lone representative of Africa. Really, I would say far and away the biggest underdog remaining in this tournament, which is funny, too, because Spain already, I mean, Spain is one of, you know, there are only really a handful of teams that have actually won the World Cup. And Spain, of course, one of the premier programs in the world. The U.S. knocked out by the Netherlands 3-1 in the round of 16. I watched this game in its entirety. The U.S. actually had, I think, the bulk of chances, the bulk of possession. But the Netherlands was just very good in transition. Again, a bend, but don't break defense. They limited the, the U.S. corners, I think. The U.S. was in the front third of the field from their end. Far more than the Netherlands was, but that goal in added time at the end of the first half to put up the Netherlands 2-0. Just a real killer. And then the third goal that put them away after the U.S. had finally gotten on the board. Real killer. This was a, a great performance for the U.S. Getting back to the round of 16. They're still a very young program, but really have some things still to do. A little bit of a... Preview, we'll have the Netherlands against Argentina. It's the first quarterfinal of four. Lionel Messi with his first ever goal in the knockout stage. Croatia will battle Brazil. Brazil, of course, most World Cup titles all time with five. Croatia still trying to win its first title. The Netherlands, by the way, having made the World Cup final three times, but yet to win. Last time they went was in 2010 when they fell to Spain. Croatia, last World Cup finalist, falling to France in 2018. They'll battle Brazil in an attempt to return to the final. Really interesting, we'll get to see England and France go head-to-head, fight for the battle of the English Channel. Kylian Mbappe, there's a great piece about him I read in Sports Illustrated discussing... Uh, just his willingness to stay in France for at the club level, despite being tempted to go elsewhere. In addition, just his his upbringing, the you know the, the racial divide, the, the cultural divide, being growing up only a few miles outside of Paris, and so it's it really just fascinating for such a young guy. But Mbappe looks to make France the first repeat World Cup champions in well over a half century Morocco last but not least Morocco will take on Portugal this is more interesting a an older portuguese program because of cristiano ronaldo in particular who has made this incredible agreement this insane 200 plus million dollar three year agreement to play in the saudi league and it's just very interesting that this decision was also made while he's in Qatar because, you know, they've been discuss- discussing the human rights violations within Saudi Arabia. We talked about that with the Live Golf Tournament, talked about it with Qatar. It's very disappointing, to, I think, to see it because I was hope- I, I did not think Ronaldo would make this signing, and, and apparently he did so. But he can honestly prove everybody right or wrong or whatever if he can finally win World Cup, but it's really anybody. It's it's really up to anybody, even Morocco. So it's going to be really fun as this takes place on Friday and Saturday and even further into the holiday season. So that does it for us this week. I thank you so much for your time. A sincere thank you. And once again, I'm Chris Russo, reminding you, good things come to those who wait.